Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From NewSounds.org and the studios of WNYC in New York, this is Soundcheck, our series of live performances and interviews. I'm John Schaefer. No No Boy is not just a stage name. It's kind of a music and history project that tells the stories of Asian communities here in the States over the last two centuries. It's the work of Julian Saperiti, a Vietnamese-American singer and musician who uses the sounds of American folk and rock but adds various Asian instruments and scales and field recordings and found sound. Nono Boy's latest album is Empire Electric, and it brings Julian and his band to our studio, where they'll start us off with this song called Jakarta. Sort of like watching a snake. 
song's called Jakarta by No-No Boy. You'll find a version of that on the latest record by No-No Boy called Empire Electric. Julian Saporiti singing and playing guitar. Amelia Saporiti singing and playing keyboards. Michelle Bazile on bass. Alex Raiderman behind the drums and percussion. And Julian, it's great to have you and the band here with us. Oh, we are so stoked to be here. Long-time listener to, to WNYC. Oh, great. I, I was wondering how you were going to do that song live, <laughs> because on the record, all the, the taped narration, that's yeah. up at the top of the song. Yeah. And it's, you know, the, the line about, you know, watching Indonesia is like watching a snake shedding skins. Yeah. Just, uh, it's, it's a really kind of a striking sense of, you know, the kind of renewal and uh, change that a country and a people go through. And it seems like that's almost a statement of intent. Absolutely. You know, uh, I'm, I'm Vietnamese, so uh, colonization, empire, renewal, reunification, uh, removal, all these things are kind of inherent to my mother's lifetime and, and certainly the generations before that. And all over Southeast Asia, uh, it's a very similar story. You know, same thing with Africa. It's really just the 20th century where all these snakeskins, so to speak, get shed, right? Right. Um, uh, all these colonizers kind of get cast off and the complications and the liberation that comes with that and the complications from the liberation and you know it's it's in the news right now um yeah. you know it's just it's just kind of this constant dance we've been doing for the last few centuries so now you, your mother's vietnamese yes sir you, your dad's presumably italian from the name saporiti saporiti yeah, yeah. you can roll that r if you feel fun <laughs> yeah. um so at what point did you become aware of otherness you yeah. know of, of of having this other kind of history in the family well the otherness i was made aware of very early on because i'm from nashville tennessee so born in 85 kind of coming up in the 90s early 2000s um before i head to school in the northeast and uh yeah it's painfully aware you know is that that old kind of now hopefully cliche kind of lunch table blues that that foreign kids or refugee immigrant kids have the worst of it was really having to watch folks like especially like young men like kind of berate my mother while we we're driving around town and things like that and so that otherness was real clear the second part though of what you're saying uh, the other culture the other history i come from that was recognized way later precisely because I felt that otherness so mm. deeply. So as a mixed race person, especially as someone who comes from a refugee family where we can't even go back to the same country my mom was born in, the, the city she's from is called Saigon, right. which is no longer on the map. You right, know? Ho Chi like, Minh City now. I always say it's like if I went home one day and it was it was Donald Trump City, you know, that would be the equivalent. Right. And it's a, it's a wild thing to comprehend, but that's what happens in some places. And so it really wasn't until I was in a rock and roll band in my 20s, Alex, dr the drummer over there, and myself, we went to Berkeley in Boston, and I was in an indie rock band, toured all over, and then kind of fell backwards into academia somehow. I kind of wanted to stop touring, clear my head, so I moved to Wyoming of all places. It was the mm. emptiest place I could find. And I just wanted to read books and climb rocks. And uh, <laughs> while doing that, uh, literally on rock climbing trips, I've always had this this dad personality for someone with no kids, meaning that <laughs> I stop at every single history like road sign. You can ask my wife, Amelia. And um, there was all these kind of hidden histories about Asian Americans. So like in Rock Springs off I-80, I remember going out west and seeing this, this sign that pointed to 28 uh, Chinese miners were massacred in 1885. And I'd never heard about this. 
and the entire Chinatown was razed to the ground because there were all these Chinatowns out west from the railroad workers and the miners. Sure. And I think what was more like profound to me was that the kids I was teaching as like a TA at the university who were from those towns or nearby towns really hadn't learned about this. Mm. And then, you know, just due north, there was this old Japanese internment camp and 14,000 folks had been uh, removed from their homes on the West Coast and put into this camp behind barbed wire just outside Yellowstone National Park. And I'd never learned about internment camps growing up in Nashville, Tennessee, you know. So that kind of got me interested in this history, finally seeing black and white photos of people who looked like me. And that's when I started to learn about these other cultures, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino, and then kind of being able to broach this very bloody and very recent history that my mom had gone through. So it's, it's really just been an, I tell people, this is just a school project run amok, what you're listening <laughs> to. I'm just lucky I can write songs. And the name, No No Boy. Uh, it's, it's a reference to a good book that I want everyone novel, to read. Yeah. So try to trick people. That's a teacher in me, man. That's a teacher. <laughs> you know, Google No No Boy, you hear us on the radio, and then... Some of you suckers will buy a book out of it. Right. You know, it's great that you can tell these stories through song because you can kind of deliver the iron fist in a velvet glove. You know, some of this is very heavy material, yeah. but it's delivered with a light touch. Many of the songs are kind of dancey, mm -hmm. and, you know, that's, that's important too. Yeah, I mean, when I was kind of convincing a few people, Amelia and I met at Brown, lovely Brown University over in Rhode Island. I was doing my PhD there. And when they said, it's time for you to do a dissertation, take all these stories you've been researching about Trans-Pacific Asian American history, I said, well, why don't you all let me write songs out of this or put out songs as part of my dissertation instead of the prose, which I won't do a very good job at because it's very hard to do a very good job at academic prose, meaning to make it readable, right? right. The research was there, but I was like, Th that story about the miners in Rock Springs or that, that old incarceration camp outside Yellowstone. I wanted more people to learn about that. I wanted the 12-year-old in Tennessee to have a chance to maybe hear that more widely. And uh, that's what songs can do. They can travel. Uh, a lot of the songs have very specific stories, but some of them, as you say, sort of pull back a bit, give us a wider angle view. Little Monk, the song you're going to do now, seems to be one of the latter. Yeah. I mean, it has some very specific imagery in it, but it basically seems to be about, you know, all right, the world's on fire. What is it this week? You know, yeah. how can I just kind of chill and be more zen? Yeah, calm down. You know, I read this good book. Well, I had to teach this good book when they made me a, a teacher at, at Wyoming after I finished my master's. And I had to, like, somehow, this is crazy for a music student, teach a great books course, like the <laughs> Western canon. I guess they were short on folks. And uh, I read this book, and I taught this book called Candide by Voltaire. Mm -hmm. And this, this guy travels all over the world, gets into all these uh, messes, all these natural disasters, uh, armies, wars, goes to South America, murders a Jesuit, I believe, then comes back to Europe, wherever he's living. And at the, the whole moral of the story is like, tend your garden. You know, like you can... You can worry and have anxiety about all the atrocities that are happening constantly, but let's start with our garden, and then maybe let's help our neighbor, kind of. And that's, mm. that's what we learned uh, right after we left Providence, Rhode Island. My, my now wife, Amelia, and I, uh, we wanted to kind of clear our heads out. You know, Being a PhD student's really cool because you get real deep. Yep. You, I think you should anyways, but I also got real narrow. Real, like you can't go super deep if you're not also really narrow. You know, it's a physics thing. Right. And, um, I wanted to uh, reintroduce wonder uh, into my life. I wanted a little bit more like broad wonder at the world instead of just the spe specificity, which had become my tool. And so 
we went to this monastery founded by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Buddhist Vietnamese monk. Oh, the Blue... Blue Cliff. Blue Cliff. Yeah, just north. We're in, in New York, upstate right? New York. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, Up around Kingston, I think. Exactly. Beautiful spot. We got to hang there for a week and hang with the monks. There was this little retreat. And it was a great place to empty out and, and try to reintroduce quiet and wonder and all these things that being a very professionalized academic, you don't really have time or the urgency to do. And that's not to say that there's not some vitally important things that we should be thinking about or doing. But if you're letting your own garden go to rot while you're yelling at the fires a thousand miles away, I don't know if that's the best way to live. Mm. And uh, I don't want to tell anyone else what to do. But that's kind of what this song is about. It's about learning how to chill out and take those monks seriously because they got some interesting things to say the same as uh, all those academics I got to learn from the previous years all right well let's let's hear the song it's called little monk live performance from no no boy so it's the end of the world once again, what is it this week? Protest over this, riots over that. Do you remember at the monastery when the outraged child cried? And little monk just sweetly smiled back. Oh, how and when do I get so zen? Life away from your small apartment Quiet days, worry within your reach Tend your garden, do not harden At the cruel and constant spinning of your mind's demands Pro tip for a good heart where your feet are now So it's the end once again Of the world the sophomores belly ache And demonstrate over everything but class Red suns and ash cover half the state of California Little monk just meditates, slowly walks the path. I can't control what I can control. Light the way from your small apartment. Quiet days, worry within your reach. Ten. So it's the end. 
feel so anxious this week Drawing canvas backs, sitting on the grass Watch as they sweep the park Trash the tents while it's still dark Though once I lived out of a car I wouldn't say I'm mad To have the sidewalk back Little Monk is the name of the song, and that's once again from the latest album by No No Boy called Empire Electric. And uh, Julian, I'm I'm curious the the album, the name No No Boy, the title Empire Electric, both in English but with Vietnamese subtitles. Yeah. Did you grow up speaking Vietnamese? No, I grew up speaking French. Ah, okay. Yeah. Which was, of course, the colonial language. It was, and so my family was. Um, well, we were we were good collaborators from a long time back uh, in mm-hmm. Vietnam. Uh, to this day, my my aunt Nicole and my mom speak this kind of Creole Vietnamese French. It's mm. very common with a lot of people who were colonized by uh, French folks or or other folks. And um, yeah, it's just part of the legacy. And uh, I don't know. I, I love um, the use of different languages. It, it gets sampled a lot in the songs. Yeah. Um, between you know, especially Vietnamese French and English. And I like pastiche a lot. So, and I like, um, I also like mislabeling a lot. So, a lot of times, sometimes in our music videos, we'll, we'll miss subtitle things, or ha- I'll have my mom translate something into Vietnamese which doesn't exactly line up with the English. Because um, that's like the most uh, accuracy is not part of the colonial legacy necessarily. Yeah. You know, and so I like playing around with all of that stuff. You know, like you said, it's it's really heavy material. I've been carrying it around for ten years and kind of putting it to a to a close with this album. And uh, you know, like I said, it's just a school project run amok. And so I kind of want to get back to singing love songs and fun stuff <laughs> like that, where every show isn't like an emotional net loss. You know. So d- does that mean you would? not perform as no no boy yeah th- well no no boy is it's 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 it, this it's really my dissertation yeah. right so we're getting to jam on three songs today but there's over a hundred songs written for it because i had all that time and all that research you know I had right. all these stories well and and you you, you know the the years in wyoming mm-hmm. uh reflected in uh, la banda mas chingon yeah absolutely the- I'll say the coolest band in Wyoming. Right, we're but, on the radio, right? Yeah. Well, but yeah. you know, on the record, it's what is it? The, the, the best, best goddamn, goddamn band. band in Wyoming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which you did with uh, a mariachi band. Yeah, see, this uh, another uh, another hip academic, actually. You know, this uh, this woman, Jessie, is doctor doctor of mariachi down in uh, Cal Poly Pomona. She was just a fan of the band, um, had done some folkways work before, is on the mailing list, and she just emailed me like a hey, I love this record. Could I get the lyrics and the chords? I'd love to like have my mariachi students play it to sort of be able to, one, expand the repertoire. But I see a lot of commonality with 
the old Caritas and stuff like that, uh, the storytelling songs. You right. Know, this is a song that's just this amazing story, really at the heart of the project, this jazz band I found this photo of in the old internment camp museum out there in Wyoming. And I'd never really seen myself. You know, like I said, Alex and I went to Berkeley. I took like three jazz history courses. I never learned about Asian American musicians. And yet, each one of these camps where 120,000 Japanese folks were all incarcerated. Japanese American. Japanese American folks. To say, yeah. Yeah. Well, these two, were Americans. Two thirds of them were citizens. Yeah. Uh, about one third were Japanese nationals, partially because, uh, and my wife, who's doing immigration law right now, will tell you, uh, Asian folks weren't allowed to be naturalized back then. Long story short, all these folks get swept up into these camps, and it changed my life seeing this photograph, like behind barbed wire and with machine guns pointed in and searchlights in these dusty old barracks in these hellish places uh, with very little. These folks formed bands and played the music of the era. Tommy Dorsey, Harry James, all that good stuff, and, and would transcribe those songs from the radio and luckily had a very formidable uh, band leader named George Igawa who was able to wrangle any musicians he could find and they put on dances all the time and even were asked to go outside the camps and play war bond drives for folks out in, in Lovell, play a, a Elks Lodge dance, uh, play a, the prom down in Thermopolis. I realize these cities mean nothing to people who have not lived in <laughs> Wyoming, but these small little towns, there's these Japanese American folks you know and for me being not japanese american by any extent i mean historically japan and vietnam mm, yeah, right, world war ii right, right. but you know asian americans in wyoming there's two folks who have ever led a jazz band in that state and i'm one of them and george ika was the other one so this <laughs> felt like a, a, a lineage right it, it changed my life Georgia, I split for Chicago With Kamiko in the fall of 44 He left the band to Tets Joy went with her family to D.C. As for Yoni, he had to join the war There's another reason that that song um, seems appropriate for this No-No Boy project, and that is what's going on on the southern border today, yeah. where, again, we're kind of in this place of Immigrant, immigrants coming in, we don't know what to do with them, and yeah. the, the, the instinct is herd them all together in an enclosed place and keep them there. Well, you know, it was right around 2016, yeah, winter break 2016, 2017, all that Muslim ban stuff was, it was kind of the Trump ascendancy, yep. all the Muslim ban stuff was like coming out, and you know, if you come from an immigrant refugee family, it's going to kind of hurt your heart a little bit. You're going to find some kind of empathy, but you know, there's no way I'm going to a cowboy bar that I used to play back in Wyoming and lecturing. Right. Right. Giving right. some 30 minute, hey, please sit down while I talk about <laughs> empire, race, and identity, folks. Just, uh, yeah, enjoy your PVR. But you can trick folks if you got an acoustic guitar in your hand. That is what some of those old folkways guys like Lead Belly, Woody Guthrie. Woody Guthrie, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a model for that. But yeah, I mean, and that's what Jesse, who really is responsible for the translation of the mariachi version of Best Goddamn Band in Wyoming, that's what she saw. She had played in the Fairplex in Pomona, California. Um, they were using that space during the pandemic to hold migrant children and try to reconnect them with their families. So folks who had crossed the border but didn't have any family, but they were kids, so they couldn't send them back on their own. And she went and played mariachi music to try to just lift up the spirits, alleviate the boredom. 80 years before Jesse went in there, Georgie Gawa was locked up in that exact same fairplex before he was sent to Heart Mountain. That's where a lot of the Heart Mountain folks were locked up in in the spring of 42. Mm -hmm. And that's where the band initially formed. 
So there was all these layers and all this cu- cross-cultural connection of folks, like you said, immigrants we just didn't know what to do with, right? right? And right. Maybe didn't have the heart to do what was right with, you know? And, and so that's kind of where that song comes from. Yeah. In, in purely musical terms, uh, it strikes me that, you know, if you're starting from a place of kind of an American folk song tradition with an acoustic guitar, yeah. that the pentatonic scale that so much of blues and country and stuff is built on uh, most East Asian music yeah. has that scale too. Do you, did you find that it, you know, that's a useful musical tool to do this? Oh, absolutely. You hear that in a lot of the melodies on the new album. I think the song Onion Kings, which is one of the singles, is a very pentatonic song. So you'll This record in particular, I had finished my PhD, so there were no more masters to please and mm-hmm. you know, no more citations to make or jargon to spew. And so I was off the leash a little bit, and that was great. And so I could just mess around with sound, and I could think about scales, go back to being a musician again before I kind of uh, was fettered by academia and thinking too hard. <laughs> and um, I found myself really blending samples of East Asian, Southeast Asian instruments um, it's like a moment in a song called Nashville where there's a banjo coupled with a steel guitar. Three flights from Ninja Road So he could catch twice at the rhyming show Then Grammy booked him for a basement slow night To open up the bill So a thumb at the honky tonks But that kid he lived for the song And thinking about the steel guitar as the instrument I loved most growing up in Nashville. But I had no idea that this instrument that meant so much to me, that I found so beautiful because it never quite landed on a note. You know, maybe right. I felt that right. way, never quite landing on a note. That that was an invention of Hawaii. Hawaii, yeah. Right? This is a, this is a, a Asian, AAPI, Native Hawaiian, whatever. It's an invention of the Pacific, right? right? And it's an invention of colonization. I grew up in Nashville, right? And we talked about the otherness I felt. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, I was loving this instrument that came from the same direction my mom came from this whole time. Yeah. Right? And so, yeah. One of the other interesting things about Nashville is, you know, you, uh, seeing that you had come from Nashville, and I see the song title Nashville, yeah. okay, okay this will be about home. Mm-hmm. And while it is about home, it's, uh, she's, I guess she's a Filipina it's singer. Like two and Filipinos who kind yeah. of find each other. Singing sister, the singer. Hey, it looks like we're sharing the bill. You and I guess we'll always match me. But I had written a long time ago, I think when I was in college in Boston with my, my, my band, and um, we had cut a version of it. But this is how, how othered I felt. I was a prolific songwriter. I wrote hundreds of songs in high school and in college when I was a kid. But I never wrote the protagonist as someone who looked like me. Mm. It was always someone who looked like yourself, maybe a little younger. Oh, thanks. <laughs> but I was, think we're done here. <laughs> it was always like a young version of like Steve Malcolmus or Rivers Cuomo, some kind of like thin indie rocker, you know, because yeah. those were the people I worshipped and listened to back then. And I could never even write myself into my songs. And so, you know, it wasn't until I sort of made those characters fictional and put them as Southeast Asian folks coming over that it felt truly 
autobiographical. Mm. You know, there's some other tan brown people hanging out in Nashville the way I did growing up. You know? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, this this project, as you say, has been going on for like ten years. Yeah. Uh, and the song you're going to do next, you're going back to album number one, right? Yes. Yeah. Album number one, 1942. The the reference of 1942 is that's when the Japanese American folks were put into those camps. Okay. Uh, this song is called Two Candles in the Dark. Uh, is this one of your ripped from the headlines, true story songs, or is this one of the more, you know, let's pull back and get a big picture thing? So this was, I do a lot of place-based writing. So when I found that that spot, right, the, the remnants of this old concentration camp, internment camp, it's called different things colloquially, but place where a lot of people were penned in behind barbed wire because of their race, let's just say that. I just was feeling all these ghosts, in particular because I was also digging through the archive. There was a camp newspaper that was um, printed, the Heart Mountain Sentinel, by the incarcerees themselves, Mm. the daily what's goings ons and whatnot inside the camp, trying to make things normal a little bit. And uh, I read through every single article over the three years that camp was in existence, and I collected dozens of oral histories of people who lived in that camp, including members of the Georgiegawa Orchestra. And I was really interested in how people lived through that, how people survived that, or maybe the way they don't survive that. And so I sort of sat down with all of these true stories of people telling me that by the swimming hole the incarcerees dug out, um, people used to light these little bonfires and some of the Hawaiian guys would play, Hawaiian Japanese guys would play ukulele and sing or you know, the old men would get together, the Issei, the first generation, would get together in the showers and they'd, they'd sing these old Japanese songs that we'll never really know because the dialects have changed and mm. they weren't recorded. But they'd remember walking by hearing that sounds along the lines of the, the camp blocks. And um, there's this old root cellar the incarcerees dug out and there's, that's still there. So I went down into that space and just started writing. That's what I do in a lot of these sites. You know, I, I work as a historian, so I travel to these places, but I also have my guitar, my sampler, my field recorder with me. And I just started thinking about, you know, some of the women I knew who I'd interviewed, who had lived through this camp, they're 15 to 20 or something like that. Those were the people who are still kind of alive. Right. And uh, thinking about a couple of them and thinking about how a lot of people got married in these camps, how a lot of people... Um, you know, fooled around in these camps, lived life, danced, you know, all sorts of things. And I wanted to take all of these little shards of history from the camp newspaper, from the archives, from my oral histories, and just sort of like tailor them to a love song, you know, just a Wyoming love song. Again, so I can go back to the buckhorn or the cowboy down in Laramie and maybe sing the song for folks and then afterwards have someone buy me a beer and we we can talk about the history of the town next to them that they never learned about growing up. Yeah. All right, let's let's hear the song. It's called Two Candles in the Dark. This is from uh, the first record by No No Boy. Here's a live performance. Don't it feel like a movie Teaching this girl how to waltz Left feet she might have three but she sure feels nice in my arms Old folks singing old songs Playing the agreed upon key My eyes are stuck on her Her eyes don't leave her feet 
And this girl, no class ring Maybe this is more than a lark Brown boots, a dirt floor We're dancing like two candles in the dark Pretty outlaw call a quarter past Light knuckles on a barrack door She got a brother down in Toho Pass I saw that name once in a jewelry store Wind around past the skaters in park Just looking for a cut in the wire She's got a key to the cellar door questions man just stand there and spy oh and this girl she gets wild i miss the garden at the golden gate park young blood and old songs We're dancing like two candles in the dark Like some movie She just tailored Made for the part Lamps licking The roof beams She's got good looking Down to an art Old folks sing them old songs The background just fades away A coffee can fire's almost gone She says I got it Get out of this place Oh, and this girl A pinpoint Man, it's the moment you feel the spark Brown boots and dirt floor We're dancing like two candles in the dark We're dancing like two candles in the dark Dancing like two candles in the dark Two Candles in the Dark. No, no, boy. Julian Saporiti, vocals and guitar. Amelia Saporiti, vocals and keyboards. Michelle Bazile on bass. Alex Raderman, drums and percussion. That was not on your original set list. Go ahead and tell us why you made the, the last-minute audible to play this one. Yeah, so someone uh, messaged me over the Internet and sent this picture of a first dance at a wedding or a video. So a mm-hmm. series of moving pictures for you radio listeners. That's what a movie is. <laughs> And uh, it was beautiful because that was it. That song is was their first dance. I thought, okay, that's interesting. A dark song to uh, you know, but it, like it's making light in a, a dark place. So, but I was just so moved. And they said, hey, we're coming to the New York show. So um, I, I, we had we hadn't played in a long time. So thanks for letting us uh, rehearse it here. On you the know, air. it it sounds like Nashville. It kind of sounds like what I imagine Wyoming yeah. would sound like. Yeah. And but this is the the key part is the story is not yeah. what 
you would expect in as an American in your mind's eye to be happening in Nashville or in Wyoming. It's Let's complicate it. Let's make room. You know, yeah. maybe I didn't get that uh, proper, more embracing experience. Uh, not to say I didn't have great friends and good people who raised me down in Nashville, but... Let's not give the people who are different than us, because uh, we're all different in our ways, but let's not give the people who it's a little more obvious such a hard time, you yep. know? Let's like be a little more accepting and, and yeah, make sure we bring people in. and Yeah, let's complicate what we think of as American. Yeah. That's part of it. Um, the album Empire Electric ends with a song called 1603, and when you choose dates, you do so for a reason. Yeah. What is the significance of the list of names at the beginning of that song and the, the date. So, 1603 is a very important... I can't believe I just asked a historian this question. I'm going to be here for half an hour, aren't yeah, I? Yeah, yeah, get your popcorn, <laughs> my friend. Um, 1603 is a really important date in Oregon history. My wife, Amelia, and I live out in Portland, Oregon mm-hmm. right now. And uh, we moved there right before the pandemic, and I just... You know, wherever I move, I got, again, that dad history personality. I got to find out all the local history and whatever. And my buddy Diego, who's a professor up at Tufts University outside Boston, he did his PhD with me at Brown. And he texted me one day, said, I'm in the archives in, in Sevilla, in Spain. And he studies the first Asians who came to the Americas. And it's, it's way before you would think. Like a lot of times, maybe you think of the gold rush, right? In the 18, uh, mid-1800s, mid-19th century. You think of the railroad folks after right. that. He's dating things back to the 16th century because the Spanish, right? They come, they do their horrible stuff here. Uh, empire in, in New Spain and Mexico, South America, parts of the U.S. And then they go over to the Philippines, right? right? And they're trading all of these Chinese goods, uh, silks and stuff like that, and what's called the Spanish galleon trade. The majority of folks who are either enslaved or indentured to be the sailors on those ships are largely Asian. Like that's the majority of those crews. So that's when people like myself and Amelia, these folks first start coming over. It's way earlier. And Diego's book that's coming out next year, it's pushing that way back and doing a lot of great research. So we start teaching these things a lot earlier. Oregon, the first time it's ever seen, documented anyways, because some ships pass by, but the first time it was like explored and documented in 1603, seen by non-native eyes that we can confirm, there's seven Asian sailors on that ship. So the first time, you know, in the state, that is the sort of um, culmination of manifest destiny. Mm-hmm, right. The iconography of Lewis and Clark, of right. the Oregon Trail, uh, a state that had a whites only constitution in the 19th century. The first people, along with some of those Spanish sailors, those are folks that kind of look like me. And that's a really important intervention. And so when Diego texted me the, the, pa- the, the passenger list and he said, we got guys from India, we got, got a guy from Japan, we got Filipinos, maybe a Chinese on here. Uh, this is your state, man. Mm. 1603, unbelievable. Wow. And those names you hear at the beginning, those are those Asian sailors who are on the crew list. Antonio Tomas, Antonio Bengala, Francisco Miguel, all have Spanish names. Yeah, all have Spanish names, and the song is really about colonialism, empire. These are complicated, difficult things when you look at 
each subject to subject. You know, we're not all my again. My I didn't grow up speaking Vietnamese. I grew up speaking French. There's all these things, and I wanted to get into the idea that they would have, they would be exploring up the coast towns that had never been named, like they named Santa Barbara, California, on this trip. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's fascinating because I just got obsessed with this one guy, Anton Tomas, and thinking about how he came from Malabar, this 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 place in India, and how did he even how did he end up in Oregon? And to unpack that is a fascinating journey. You know, it's like I wish some novelist would take this up because there's some movie maker. Because this guy is traveling. Like I said, I invoked Lewis and Clark and their journey, which uh, has uh, been lionized thousands or millions of times in our history. What about this Anton Tomas guy? This world that wasn't even mapped properly that that he explored because of all of these forces of colonialism and empire. And that's all kind of jumbled up into this this song with all these different sounds and and that's Diego saying those names the actual researcher who found those uh, documents made the discovery that the first ship to see Oregon was crewed by Asian sailors so you know yeah well you joked you, you know 30 minutes later but <laughs> let's go out to let's go out for a meal and I'll only scratch the surface it's amazing history now producer Karen Havlick running uh, videos down in the control room just told me in my headphones Julian needs his own podcast <laughs> oh, I don't know about that. I do have a voice for radio, I've been told. But... <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure, man. And, and you know what? Like Again, this, this is a school project run amok, and things like seeing album streams on Spotify or YouTube views or getting to come places like this, you can't dream of this as an academic, to be able to share these stories, to get people to l- have little bite-sized tastes, and hopefully they go out and, you know, read the book that the band name is uh, right. titled after, or, you know, hear this song, and then maybe buy Diego's book or my other colleagues who I work with and stuff like that. Or most importantly, ask your auntie what her life was like. Yeah. That's where these songs really come from. Because it doesn't matter what you look like or how quote-unquote marginalized you are, everyone's got an incredibly important history to tell and it's when enough of those histories are sung or painted or written down or podcasted that we get a more honest view julian thank you so much for joining us and playing for us bringing the band in congratulations on no no boy uh look forward to whatever comes next for you yeah well we'll i don't know when this is airing but we'll be at joe's pub in march do one more show great people can check out and uh one more tour in the spring and then you gotta, you gotta bury these ghosts at some point, you know. All right. But the records are there. Well, uh, I mentioned Karen Havlick uh, doing video today behind the plexiglass. As always, Irene Trudell getting the sound right. I'm John Schaefer. You can keep up with everything we're doing on New Sounds by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter. Text New Sounds to seven zero one zero one, or sign up on the website at newsounds.org. The light in my soft falling past Forgive us this, our sin 